You're listening to a special live recording of the podcast, Artists and Hackers, a podcast on art, code, and community. We talk to programmers, artists, educators, and designers in an effort to critically look at online art making and the history of technology and the internet. We're interested in where we've been and speculative ideas on the future. I'm Lee Tussman. This season, we've partnered with the New Media Caucus, an international nonprofit formed to promote the development and understanding of new media art. On today's episode, I'm speaking with four new media artists selected by the New Media Caucus for New Rules, Conversations with New Media Artists. This event and this season of the podcast is supported by the National Endowment for the Arts, Grants for Arts Projects. Our guests for the program were Chelsea Tomto, Katie Duffy, Sue Huang, and Rasheen Fahandej. A fifth artist, Shanae Michaeline Holloway, wasn't available for the live recording, but she's individually interviewed in episode 16, and each of the other artists were also individually interviewed. So be sure to check those episodes out as well. This special live recording was held in February 2023 on location at Flux Factory in Queens, New York City. Just to kick things off and to get started a little bit, I was hoping that the artists could say a little bit about their background. And for each of you, how did you get involved? How did you get into making new media art? Sue, maybe we'll start with you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Lee. Um, my name is Sue Huang, um, pronouns she, they. I teach at the University of Connecticut, and I am a new media artist. I uh, went to UCLA for grad school, on the same school as Lee, and I previously, um, previous to that, had studied at an art and technology program in Sweden. And then even prior to that, I had been studying science and technology policy at Georgetown. So when I think about kind of like the patterns of interest that I had when I was getting into this work, I think I was like always really interested in the future and I was always really interested in thinking about what was to come. So I was always really interested in thinking about how internet, the internet and different technologies were being used by people in society, by activists, and then later, um, I was interested in making those um, uh, tools myself. Did you, so Sue, did you come from a background though where you've been doing photography or painting or some other media? Or did you, were you, did you start working in new media? Was that like, how did you get there? Um, so I actually, I mean, I started from international affairs actually. So science, technology, policy for international affairs. So I was thinking about how And then you activists... made the natural, you made like the natural transition from, from that to new media art. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about, how, I was writing and thinking and researching about how activists were using the internet. Um, this is back in like 1990, uh, 1997, 1998, uh -huh. um, how they were using the internet to transform society, how they were using it to act against um, governments and non-governmental agencies. So that was actually where I first learned about programming. Gotcha. Um, and so when I learned about programming, at first I'll, I'll admit I was very confused and I was um, not really sure about what to do with it. It was later when I went on to study art at this art and technology program that it finally kind of clicked into place and I was like, okay, all right, and now I understand um, about computers and about programming. Gotcha. And, and, I, and, I, and I'll say I, I got hooked. 
Yeah. And I got hooked, and that happens. Um, you can get hooked on programming, and that kind of set me off on the journey that I've continued on. Okay, so this is good. So you got hooked on programming. This happened to me as well. Um, and so this makes me want to speak a little bit to Chelsea, um, since code has been such a big part of your practice. Can you say a little bit about how you came to become a new media artist, what your background was, and what led you there? Yeah, I actually started out as a sculptor in my undergraduate and a sculptor also in the first bit of graduate school that I did. And I kind of feel like my whole existence as an artist has been having technical skills that I consider not art skills and then slowly over time realizing that they are in fact art skills and bringing them in because I've been interested in computers. I built computers with friends in high school um, and really, you know, has have been interested in like the technical side of it for far longer than I have really understood it as part of my art practice. And I didn't really make my first piece that I would consider like a quote unquote new media art piece until probably 2015 or 2016 in grad school. Okay, so this is interesting. So a large part of the work that I saw is not just the work itself, but it's the code behind it as well. Can you say a little bit about how that became an element of your practice too, how that became an important part of your, your practice? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that drew me to it. I think the two things really for me with code is one that I realized that the way that I was thinking, I could model that in code, um, or that code was a good way of finding metaphor and analogy with the way I was thinking. And then the other part of it is that I really love to be able to share process with people. Uh, and there's, you know, you could do that, of course, when you're thinking about sculptural processes or studio processes. But the thing I love about code is how open it can be if you choose to make it that way. Uh, and so as I started working with code, my thought was, even if this stuff is not, you know, exactly the most refined or beautiful or impressive code, that there was something added to the conversation by having it be open. Uh, and so for me, it really becomes about the conversation I'm having with different layers of audience, the audience who's only going to see the visual work, the audience who is maybe going to dabble in the back end, and then the audience who might go to a GitHub repo before they even look at the, the visual. And I'm kind of interested in how to make things that are interesting for all those groups. Okay, so we're talking about public, we're talking about audience, then we're talking about GitHub, you know, which is where we're some nerds here, but just to kind of spell it out, GitHub is an online space where um, the largest space in the world, I think, for people to kind of share code publicly, to work publicly on um, software projects, which could be, I don't know, a database or banking software, or it could be an art project or, or anything in between. Um, one of the things that I, you know, I've been interested in is thinking about our different, you know, what, what are our publics? Who are, who are our public when we're showing our work? And, you know, one is the art space. One might be a code repository. Um, another might be a miniature golf course. And so I wanted to ask um, KT how you um, got into making new media art. And then also a little bit about the spaces that you show that work in, how you choose, uh, you know, the form of your work creating a mini golf course, for example, for one of your pieces or one of your projects? Like, what are the right avenues for presenting that work? I think I kind of wanted to prove that I could do it. So I, I studied uh, design and social work. Um, and it turns out I was just interested in the con content of the social work degree and not the practice of social work. Uh, we can talk about that. I can talk about that all day long, but maybe I'll breeze over that for now. Um, and so 
I was really interested in design, and then I got uh, really invested in video, and then from video I made the jump to like interactivity. So I taught myself how to code while I was like bartending after undergrad, and then continued that in um, in grad school. So and then I also worked uh, in a tech startup. I'm a recovering tech worker. Um, <laughs> So that gave me a lot of like experience in like UX UI and like front end development, and I was just really interested in how I could f that up a little more. It's like really prescribed and formulaic and uh, very a frictionless experience. And I was just like, well, what about a little friction? Like, what happens when you like like kind of fuck up this path that you know is perfectly planned for us? So I'm, uh, that's kind of how I got into it. And then. The mini golf um, was actually a show at the Elmhurst Museum of Art, and they were asking for proposals. It's a, it was a redo of a show from the 70s at the Art Institute called Par Excellence Redux, and it was put on by Colossal in Chicago. Um, and so I submitted a proposal to kind of explore this uh, medieval meme I'm sort of obsessed with in Ireland called the Sheelana Gig. If anyone knows what that is, it's like a what is yeah, it? It's like a, a gargoyle thing that's like holding its own vulva open. Um, it's pretty incredible. And, and it's this found, is like a proto meme? Yeah, it's like a Stone Age. Well, not Stone Age, but it's, it's carved in stone. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's the time we're talking about. And um, yeah, like no one exactly knows what it's about. Uh, and people have like claimed it for all different reasons. And you find it like over like archways and doors, but you also find it in like the cornerstone of churches. So. Scholars think that it was maybe some kind of fertility symbol, but like also maybe at some time was like demonized and was a, a symbol of like like femme lust or something bad like that. And um, yeah, I'm just obsessed with it, and I just thought it would be really interesting to explore that in the mini golf universe. So I made this idol, and um, I kind of just let it be. I just wanted it to be like all those things, like exist on all those planes. And uh, I just also really love the idea of like creating this like queer vagina monster idol for like like families to play with. Like I think that stuff and like talking about that stuff with kids is like really important. So I just wanted it to be like this kind of celebration of this thing I'm obsessed with. And um, yeah. It was really fun to make, uh, and I'm I'm working on a, a big VR project that I hope to work on for the next like two years about the Sheelana gig, uh, which is exciting. So I, I keep returning to that as a subject matter. When I look at your work, there's a lot of joy that I find oh, um, in the pieces, which is, for whatever reason, I think it's harder to find sometimes when I'm looking at art in galleries and museums and things like that. And I think that really stuck out when I'm when I'm checking out your pieces. One of the things that's kind of a universal when we're looking and or creating art, right? So all of us are and everyone, one of you are artists too, you're new media artists, you're creating work, but thinking about who that audience is and what you're trying to, um, what you're trying to show or demonstrate or say. I'm curious, um, Rasheen, to hear a little bit from you, um, not only your background as a new media artist, how you got into making new, new media artwork, but how does working in public shape your work? Thank you, hi everyone. So, <laughs> coming, to new media art or emerging emerging um, technology and art. Um, I, my background is also in fine art and painting and a sculpture. So definitely that sort of poetry and tactility of, of that um, space is, is um, something that I would like to translate to emerging media. But one of the main reasons that I 
um, that I find emerging media and immersive storytelling um, compelling um, is the aspect that it's in a space that it's innately exploratory. So it allows for experimentation. And I do use the emerging media and technology as a way to connect with the community and work with the community and sort of process the space of trauma um, and, and be speculative and think about future, that it could be different. Um, so I find a great power in that sort of novelty of those tools um, and sharing those spaces and using that basically the, the tools that the, the, to, to create these alternative spaces to bring community members together with, with the artists or community members from different perspective uh, to then work together to, to, to imagine spaces. So definitely my, my work and my practice is community engaged in, 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 um, in the process and that's 80% at least of, of my time and that I invest in, in, in that work. Um, and um, and also like another aspect of the media is is this form of like transcendent like there is a possibility to transcend beyond the space of trauma using that speculative um, um, space. Can you say a little bit how some of this plays out in a specific work? I'm 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 really curious if you could describe your piece, A Father's Lullaby, mm -hmm. what it entails, how it works. Um, yeah, particularly, you used the language when I, when I was reading about it of disrupting the traditional power dynamics in media mm -hmm. and tech. Yeah, so one of the main questions that I have, like um, for me, art is a tool. I grew up in Iran with the experiences that comes with that, and I grew up as a um, woman and as a, a minority, uh, persecuted minority, so definitely, I use art as a tool of communication and thinking about culture shift, the power that the media and technology and the storytelling, personal stories have in creating a, a cultural um, um, impact. Um, and, and, and with the Father's Lullaby, one of the things that I've been sort of exploring is the possibility of ecosystem, like how can we create when we think about social justice issues, they are complex, they are intersectional, they are multi-dimensional, and they are re really hard to engage with them. And, I, and I'm really interested in that web and in creating, um, again, like alternative communities. And when I'm thinking about social change, I feel there is an, a need to change our processes of doing things because a lot of time our processes are actually perpetuating the same um, structural um, or social dynamics that we try to critique. So the community co-creation, really shifting the power dynamic and allowing the community to bring their expertise, their lived experiences as expertise into the space and be able to hold on to the tools, to the 360 camera, to the VR, to the tilt brush, and paint with their children in, the, in, in this space, and really uh, use that tools to kind of um, process the space of trauma, a form of healing and connection, but also think about how it could be different. 
It's taking it into your own hands, being able to shape things, as opposed to something being done to you, it's you doing something. Absolutely, doing yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. absolutely, I think that sort of power and shifting that power dynamic is important, but also in terms of the technology and the, and the tech field is also important. Right. Because it's also breaking the wall between who we consider those who we allow to, to play and work with the technology. Right. Um, Chelsea, I'm curious if that's part of your work as well. You know, in some of your pieces, you're kind of confronting kind of um, different forms. I think you've used the language, and correct me if I'm wrong, different forms of violence that you're confronting or counteracting with that. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about that and how, how you see that play uh, a part of the projects that you're creating. Yeah. This really started for me with a project that I did where I was looking at the Mississippi River and I was looking at this question that I had about who made the decision to take the Mississippi River and make it basically a highway for capitalism and to really make the river a cyborg by putting all these dams. And that led me down this path to start thinking about the ways that technology has played a role in uh, fixing bodies mm. and uh, making them pr producers, right, of knowledge, of product. Um, and then, you know, as a trans person, I often find that the technologies that are used to fix and stabilize or make bodies productive are really ill fit for me. Uh, and so, you know, I would say probably that my most recent project that discusses this is Landmarks, which is a project that looks at facial recognition, which is really quite bad at understanding faces that do not fall within really white Western ideas of what gender may or may not look like. And the idea behind this project is to really kind of lean into this idea of the default, because I think that there's a lot of violence that is inherent in defaults, in the, in the ways that we think about categories as inherent or natural, and that those things get reproduced really, really fast, actually, with technology. Because you think about the way that you go through your life, and you maybe uh, meet a new person, and you have a sense of what their gender might be, but then maybe you ask them their pronouns. And that's a very slow, slow social process, but something like facial recognition and machine learning, that's taking that process and it's making that decision super fast. And so one of the things I like to think about in my work is like, how can we slow down that super fast process and really like think about all the things that it's taking for granted. And mm -hmm. so for me, uh, part of engaging with the code is really about problematizing it and thinking about ways to um, set up space for folks to be able to actually explore it. Um, one of the other things about the work is that I'm really cautious of reproducing that violence. And so mm -hmm. uh, in the work, I try to think about the ways that harm might be reproduced by the project and what are the ways that I might be able to, to limit or circumvent that. What are some of the examples that I'm really curious? Yeah, so um, for the Landmarks project with the facial recognition, you know, I was shopping around for you know, what actual technology am, am I gonna use? What library am I gonna use? And I ended up choosing uh, a facial recognition library that's powered by JavaScript in part because I was able to take the weights, the actual data that they use to make those decisions, and I was able to make an archive of that and have it run off of past data so that 
any viewer that came in and looked at that work on looks at the website, if you go to it today, it's still the same exact way. You can look at that work, you can engage with that work, either by having live fa facial recognition happen to you or by looking at a pre-recorded video, but the data is not improved at all, right? So it's, it's not actually saving any data, it's not, um, sending any of that back to make a model better or anything like that. So that really informed, you know, the, the back end and really changed pretty dramatically like how the actual coding happened, right? Because it, it meant, okay, now this is this is what I have to, to learn with and and this is kind of the limits that I'm working within. But for me, that ethic is like really what allows me to be able to put something out like that out into the world and know that I'm I'm not like just blindly reproducing what, what could be a really harmful product. Pushing at those boundaries, seeing them dissolve, makes me think a little bit of love too. Um, maybe this is fitting because it was recently Valentine's Day, but I'm thinking specifically a little bit, KT, of your work. I'm thinking of your piece, I want to watch you watch it burn. Saying that right? I want to watch you watch it burn. Yes. Um, you wrote about it that it's a statement of love and of solidarity. And I guess I'm curious, how does love play a part of your work in general or specifically in that piece? Um, I think like in general, uh, so I'm white and I know a lot of white people and um, there's this idea of like the work of whiteness, like what is our work in, um, you know, thinking about like racial justice and social justice in general and um, also something about me is that I come from cop culture in Chicago. My dad was a cop in Chicago, mm. so like this is the community that I was raised in and uh, for a really long time I sort of distanced myself from that community, but like through being an adult and reading a lot of bell hooks and um, you know, just having a lot of life experiences, I, I just realized that like the only way to do this work is with love mm. um, and not like cute, cuddly love, though that like plays a role, I guess, um, but like really kind of like a hard lined love that like holds people accountable and like meets people where they're at continually shows up so that's that's how I think about like a practice of love and like my sort of general practice as like a artist educator person that is learning about abolition um, and then sorry you were you were asking about the the one piece as well I was but I'm actually <clears throat> curious as you were just saying that like it also makes me think about you know so you're you're, you're an educator how, how does that play a part in the education role you just you mentioned that how might that come across either in the classroom or kind of in your pedagogical approach? I'm curious. Yeah, well, right now I'm, I'm uh, teaching at University of Oklahoma. Um, part of that I was teaching in Chicago at Northeastern Illinois University, which is like a really radical institution. And so having really complicated conversations about like race, class, and gender was like really welcome there. And the students really, really wanted to have those conversations. Um, but that's not really the case where I'm at currently. Um, there are students that really crave that, but it's not, um, I got a lot of bad reviews my first semester. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, these students are, they're not all of them, but like a lot of them are really different from me. They have really different values. They come from, you know, different places than I do. And I think like the same thing that I was saying before, like approaching them with love and respect and with dignity, um, like I feel like that's the only way to like lead, uh, lead a conversation or facilitate a conversation about like really really difficult topics that like may not have any solutions and 
I, I've realized through like doing this the wrong way for much of my life is that like you can't make people feel like they're stupid even if what they say is like some nonsense. You have to really meet them like where they're at and um, there's a, a good way to maybe encapsulate that is, is thinking about like Claudia Ranke and um, how she supposes that like it's sort of we have as white people we have this inclination of like finding solidarities with like BIPOC communities but like who we should actually trying to find solidarity with is other white people because that's like our work in this in this larger context is like trying to get my own people in line mm -hmm. and just like show up for them even though it, it feels like sort of counterintuitive and so that's what I try to do in the classroom as well. Anyone else want to speak to that in your teaching practice coming from a place of love and maybe confronting challenges or um, making an impact that way? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, finding all, all possibilities of um, culture shift. And I think as an educator, we have, that's, that's why I think I'm, I'm, I am an educator, because I feel the possibility of engaging the next generations in all of these critical questions uh, that is hard, and you get bad reviews. <laughs> but also, it's really empowering. And I think it's empowering for them, too, because some of them might be the first time they engage with these questions or with these encounters. I actually do teach a course that brings directly my, I, I, I try to bring all these critical questions in every course that I teach in some way and form. And, um, but I think, but I also teach a course that directly engages with my research and my artistic practice as, as sort of methods um, that I can offer to the students. So I teach this course, um, it's, we are in the fifth semester that brings um, formerly incarcerated fathers and probation officers. So the fathers are on federal probation and the officers into the classroom for the entire semester. And they work with the students. Um, so I think creating that encounter, the possibility of that sort of engagement is empowering for everybody. So the idea is to disrupt, again, the power dynamic that exists, even tem temporal. Right, but but thinking about is it possible to create a form of memory, a form of presence that we, we would have not imagined before, this sort of space and but extended space like durational space that we were together and we were working, working through learning, but also telling stories and narratives. So it is around the father's stories. Um, or it, it is centered on love the space of love and the role of the fathers as this sort of nurturing um, character. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's challenging, okay, so I'm just thinking of one thing. So I'm a professor. When we're, when we're like designing our courses, we're coming up with our curriculum and our lesson plan, we come up with these learning objectives. I, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, right? We come up with these learning objectives. These are what we're trying to hit in the courses that we teach. And we're like promising these certain skills we're gonna teach, right? Oh, you're gonna learn to code in this class and you're gonna be able to analyze, you're gonna be able to critique, you're gonna, these kinds of things. How do we balance that with these things like, oh, I wanna be able to learn to program or I wanna be able to get a job with this skill or you know, I wanna be able to use Photoshop, you know, whatever these things are, be able to use a game engine and make a video game. How do we, I guess I'm curious how you all deal with this yourselves when you're, when you're working, you know, 
you're a professor, you're an artist, um, you, you know, you have these things that you're really passionate about that, that are important in like in how we want to, you know, we got into teaching because we want to make an impact in certain ways. How do we balance that stuff, you know, um, with these like other things of like, oh yeah, also we're going to learn, you know, Boolean variables, you know, like <laughs> the delicate balance. Does that make sense? Like, I'm, I'm curious how, how people deal with that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll talk about that uh, a little bit. So I think I'm kind of in a, what I think of as kind of a curious spot because I teach in the Bay Area, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, as it were, but I teach at a public institution that um, largely serves first gen and working class students. Mm. And that's the background I come from too. And uh, most of my students are, uh, you know, what is considered historically underserved by universities. Uh -huh. uh, and so, you know, for me in the classroom, it's it's an interesting space to be like, here we are learning about technology, yet we're sort of barred from a lot of the wealth of Silicon Valley. And, and, and it's actually right. like really challenging for a lot of my students to even be present in the classroom because of the you know the financial context and so for me when i'm thinking about like the technical skills i think of that as also an issue of class right like they're thinking about jobs um, but one of the ways that i think about it when i'm talking to them is that like the thing that is hireable from quote unquote an art standpoint is less that you know how to use the p tag in html and more that you have a sense of like why you're putting something between <laughs> your your p tags in html and this gets back to this kind of like idea of like a liberal education right and like you know what does it mean to create i don't actually love the word citizen in this context right but like maybe community member is a better thing like how do you make a sensitive thinking community member uh and that that is actually i think i'm hope i'm hopeful that that is actually going to be like a more sought after skill in technology in the coming years especially with things like chat gpt and these other things that are like automating a lot of these hard quote unquote technical skills i think that uh there's going to be a shift back towards the 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 softer more artistic more social ways um and in that way I, i'm hopeful at least that artists can can really lead that and if artists are going to lead that it needs to be artists that are not uh you know people that have had the benefit of um, you know, a, family, a familial lineage of education or a familial lineage of wealth. And so I try to promote to my students that actually the fact that they have, that they feel like they're not um, welcome in tech or that they haven't been allowed to work with tech is actually really radical and wonderful and powerful for them and all the more reason for them to try to hang with it. Thank you, Chelsea, for that. Um... I was just going to offer that uh, my approach to teaching technology, specifically code, is to break shit with my students. Um, that's how I learned how to code. Break uh, yeah, break Which you know, um, that's when I, I learned how to deal with technology because like I'm a neurodiverse person that like the normal modes of education don't work for me, and I feel like for me in my classroom when you approach technology as something that is like not you know, this like overlord in control of our lives, which it absolutely is, like don't get me wrong, but when you when you uh, expose it as a tool that uh, is not as difficult to understand as uh, perhaps Silicon Valley would want us to believe, um, and you know, when you uh, design projects so where the students can just like rip it apart and put it back together and imagine like new forms of technology and new ways of, 
uh, being in community with technology because it seems that like again maybe in Silicon Valley it's like the community like builds itself around the tech right like the tech often comes first and then the community forms and I'm really interested in like how do we lay the groundwork for the community uh, and then bring the tech into the community so that the community has like self-governance and ownership over the technology because we're sending these students out into the world and out into the industry and it's trash out there right like uh, <laughs> and um, I just like let them know that like I'm here to equip y'all with the skills you need to navigate this, like to how to take up space in that like institution, how to use your voice, how to be an ally, um, because I f I personally feel like that stuff is like far more important than the syntax, because um, the syntax will come, like you will learn that you'll learn it on the job as long as you have like a familiarity with it. Can I just say though one thing I think you're also doing too, which is I think you're being very playful, right? But it seems like both in your work and then also in how you teach too. If, if I'm if I'm if I'm getting that right, yeah. is that is that some aspect of it? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm curious what amount of of play and you know if that registers with you and if that if that's some key to kind of you know how you how you work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, I I learned how to do all this by just messing around with it, you know, and like spitting something out from this program and bringing it in this other program and then like going to the code and messing with that and then you know spitting it out as audio or something like that um so for me like play is is like a huge part of my practice um like this idea of like serious play right and um yeah i think like i i try to bring a lot of like fun times into my classroom too because i'm also talking about like critical technology constantly and the students, like in those conversations, the students often feel really defeated uh, because that's like how this conversation goes. Um, and we don't really have like a solution to a lot of the problems that technology poses. And so in order to uh, create an environment where students can feel like they can participate in making change or envision change for the future, I feel like uh, bringing in play is a really important role to allow the students to have like hands-on experience with what future making looks like whether it's like you know com like using a weirdo api or um you know having like dolly interpret your dreams and things like that um i'm probably rambling now maybe no, no, i'll this sunset is great. this, this is conversation I'm, I'm also i'm curious for for others too sue um what aspect of pl does play play in your work yeah, I mean, I think if I'm talking about my own work or or my students' work or my own work, um, either way, um, you know, I want to, you know, I like the work's got to be interesting, so it's got to, you know, is so, that like yeah, part I of mean, your? I make work about ice cream and um, fungi and right. erotica because, you know, those are things that are interesting and they're, you know, they're interesting to me, you know, and um, often they're again? interesting it's ice cream. to other people. Ice cream, uh, fungi, fungi, clouds, and, clouds and, and erotica. erotica. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those are things, I mean, right? Like, we, we, like, lay around and we, like, stare at clouds. So, yeah, like, people like to write about clouds and then I'm, like, thinking about clouds and I'm, like, writing about clouds and then I'm, like, making clouds. And like I made clouds for like an entire year. <laughs> um, I made ceramic clouds, and then I made the cloud ice cream. Um, so, you know, uh, and that was great because like I could totally get into that because like I like clouds, and I could spend an entire year just thinking about clouds. Um, 
Amazing. And yes, is it going to be playful? Yes, I want it to be playful because I've got two kids and they've got to enjoy that, you know? Like, totally. And so, like, I want that work to be accessible on many, many different levels. Like, it's got to be accessible for all types of publics. Like, the audience is, like, really important in my work. The audience experience is really, really important to me. Um, so... You know, um, you know, I can talk about like theoretical things about my work, and 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 that's really enjoyable for me. But um, it's not necessarily important to everybody um, in that audience. So some people just want to go; they want to eat some cloud ice cream, and that's awesome too. Yeah, and, works yeah. on multiple levels. Uh, Rasheen, I'm curious, actually, in your work, um, there's a there's a lot of narrative, there's a lot of storytelling in your work. You're trying to um, confront imbalances, hierarchies, um, violence, political structures. I'm curious if there's an element of, of play in the creation or the experimentation or, or some aspect of that in your work too. Is that something that um, is part of the work or, or not as much or, or are, there, are there other motivators or other ways that you're working? Yeah, definitely. I think depending on how you um, define play, right. um, yeah, for sure. So I think that sort of exploration and discovery is something that that is definitely pronounced um, an, an an important aspect of it. And I think that's why it be, it can be a speculative because you allow like failure. So when I think about play and when I think about exploration, like I emphasize there's so much in my in all aspects of um, like pedagogy, in the process of working with, with people and community, um, and, 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 and thinking about how um, there is a joy in the sense of discovery, right? Like, and I think that that's how I define play, like experimenting with, with tools and, and finding new ways to, 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 to use that as storytelling. And in my own work, I, I use a range of different mediums, you know, past mediums of uh, stop motion animation to volumetric filmmaking, and the same with the pedagogy. Like, I, just to go back to what you mentioned before, like, it doesn't need to be binary. It doesn't need to be working with tech and working with tech that has meaning. And I feel like it's really interesting to merge them together and, and break all of these form of walls and, and definitions that we, that I think they are um, part of the structure that we are critiquing, right? So instead of spending all the time for students to do projects to just learn the technology, they can do social impact work. And in the process, they can learn what to do and how to do it, and the same with the community members. So I think that sort of play comes to, to, to practice because it allows that fear uh, to break and, and, and have joy in doing things and not working, and, and, um, and then eventually work together to, to make meaning of the experiments um, that is happening along the way. I just wanted to offer that play is also like a reform, a form of refusal, mm. you know, like using a thing wrong, um, offering up uh, a project that suggests wrong usage for a weirdo outcome. Um, I think is really important to give students some autonomy with the technology that kind of controls their life. I like that. What's m maybe the largest or some of the biggest challenges you face 
as a new media artist? Currently, or? <laughs> yeah. Um, or if that doesn't register, I can ask Trying to get AR Core to run on an Amazon tablet. <laughs> Say that one more time. Trying what? to get AR Core from Unity, to, which is a Google product, to run on an Amazon tablet. Because my students have like PCs with an iPhone, and like you can't build your AR app for your iPhone on a PC. And so we tried to use tablets, and it, everyone was sad. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the biggest, like, issue like as a new media maybe I'm wrong I, I was asking this in a different kind of way but then I realized that actually maybe it is the most immediate problems are always tech related right so why do we work in this medium then like why do we or why do we work with this technology it's very hard to give people things that they know how to do and then say fail and experiment and expand uh, so I think that's actually the whole point for me and for the students and the fathers and the community is to actually come together in a playing field that nobody knows how to do it. I know, but they don't. <laughs> and, and, and think about, OK, this is a discovery. This, let's learn. And that's part of the work. Like I always uh, define my work at this triangle of technology is one part of the learning. And then that sort of community building and learning how to actually do co-creation work is another aspect of it. And learning about that social justice issue that we are actually digging into and trying to critique and that system critique is another aspect of it. Uh, so it's, it's a more, like, it, it becomes a more holistic work and but a lot, a lot, a lot of things to deal with. But I think what is interesting is like maybe it become more of this sort of past past methods of learning that you just learn alongside somebody who has done it for many years and know how to do it, and you learn in the process. So it's more of a mentorship sort of way of processing things together. Uh, and I think it's exciting. Like again, like I think for my students, what I tell them that they need to learn is to unlearn what they know already about all of the processes, like production process, and, and also kind of agency over like having, having this idea, like the idea is that nobody comes forward with an idea and the idea emerges from the work that we do together. Um, so, so the unlearning is definitely a, 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 big, a big portion of it. Uh, I was actually, I was blowing glass the other day with uh, the person I blow glass with and she's really good. She's been doing it for like 20 years and I've poorly been doing it for like four or five. And she was kind of like, why are you doing this? Uh, you know, we, we have a good time and, and we, we like make a lot of stuff, but she was like, you know, you could pay somebody to make this thing that you're trying to make. And I was like, yeah, I definitely could pay someone to make the thing, but there's something about learning mm. to make the thing. And also, you know, I, I'm gonna make something different because I failed to make the thing I thought I wanted to make mm -hmm. over and over again. And the same thing happens with technology. And I was telling her, I was like, you know, I really think that for me, like collecting technical skills is like, is kind of a hobby. And so being a new media artist is like, that's the best way to do it because there's always like a new technical skill. And when you, just when you think you have it pinned down, like the new thing happens, right? Or something updates, or when you said the thing about the, like the AR and the tablet, um, I have a collaborative group that I've been working with and we're gonna be in this show and they're like, great, we only wanna run your A-frame project on this iPad. And then it turns out that in an AR environment, you can't run video on an iPad. It's just like not possible. And I spent like 
four days over break, just like crying, like typing on my computer, like, why am I doing this? And then, you know, we found a solution that's not the same thing. And it was like, oh yeah, but actually like that, that really did actually give me a whole bunch of new threads and new things. And so the, it's the blessing and a curse kind of thing where it's like the technical acquisition can like really slow things down, but in like the trying and failing and playing, you actually, I think, come to more interesting questions and more interesting solutions. Mm, I love that. And I want to thank all of you um, for speaking. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was our live audience recording of New Rules, conversations with new media artists. New Rules was recorded on location at Flux Factory in Queens, New York City in February 2023. Thanks to our guests, Chelsea Tomto, Katie Duffy, Sue Huang, and Rasheen Pahandej. My name is Lee Tussman. Our audio producer is Max Ludlow. This season of the podcast is produced with the New Media Caucus for New Rules, conversations with new media artists. You can find out more by visiting newmediacaucus.org. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. To find out more about how National Endowment for the Arts grants impact individuals and communities, visit arts.gov. Special thanks to Jesse McDowell, Rebecca Forstadter, and Matt Rowe. Our music on today's episode is High Water by Artem Bemba, 20 by Lucky Dragons, and Ambient Fight by Kirk Osamaya from the Free Music Archive. You can find episodes, full transcripts, music credits, and links to find out about our guests and other topics on our website, artistsandhackers.org. You can find us on Instagram at artistsandhackers and on Mastodon at artistsandhackers at post.lurk.org. You can always write to us on our website. Please forward this or any of your favorite episodes to a friend, and be sure to leave us a review or feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>